we're in Ephesians chapter six. We've we've got what uh, we're going to do three sermons on this section on spiritual warfare, and then we have one more sermon, and then we're done with Ephesians. Um, and so, you know, it's been an awesome journey. It's been a heap of fun. Um, in, in terms of context, the past you know four or five sermons we were looking at the household, uh, the ancient household, and God's plan for a redeemed and renewed household. What does it look like to be married and husbands and wives and children and even slaves and masters once you become a Christian? And we saw that God's plan is to basically transform the world through transformed homes by being in order, by having authority structures, by serving one another, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we get to display the global glory of Jesus Christ. And then we come to this last section here where Paul is going to give the Ephesians instructions about how to engage in spiritual warfare. And the two kind of go hand in hand. There's a book that came out recently called The Household and the War for the Cosmos. Um, And it's a really good book. I recommend reading it. I've read most of it, not all of it. Um, But basically this concept that the household and spiritual warfare go hand in hand. They're not separate things. Um, the, the, the life of a Christian and the life of spiritual warfare is not just for like the spiritually elite or those who are more spiritually minded. As we're going to see today, it involves everyone um, at all times and in every stage of the Christian journey and even for those who aren't yet Christians. So today is going to be a bit um, weird if, you, if you're not used to the Bible and you're not used to supernatural. Um, you know, the Bible is a very supernatural book. Uh, it's it, you know, God is a supernatural being. And so just keep an open mind as we read today, um, as we press in, have you ask any questions in your head. If you have any critiques or thoughts, bring them to me or someone you know if you're visiting with us. Uh, And let's see what God's word has to say to us. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 20. That's Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Would you pray with me? Our God and Father, may you bless the preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, we pray. One of my favorite things to do when I have a spare night on my own is to watch some kind of form of action war movies. Uh, I I like action movies, but I particularly like war movies, ones that involve epic battles, daring courage, sacrifice, a little bit of gore, not too much gore, but that the, you know, the rush and the pursuit of taking down the enemy, crushing them and rising into victory. I like the drama when you think the team's going to lose and then somehow they come back and win. 
in particular, probably my two favorite battle scenes in, in all of, you know, cinematography history would be um, in The Lord of the Rings, uh, because I think it represents so much of, you know, this worldview that I love. But I love in, in the second movie, The Two Towers, when the orcs from Isengard come against Helm's Deep in their innumerable number, 10,000 of them, lights, light, you know, torches as far as you can see. And there's this piddly group of, you know, elves and, and, and um, you know, men who are trying to secure their families. And somehow, against all odds, they destroy these orcs and they win the battle. Uh, and so they're in this epic defensive position and somehow they hold. My second favorite one is in the Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. But this time they're in the offensive position. This time they march to the gates of Mordor to take down the Lord Sauron and destroy his evil forces. And that it, toward the end, and I did some research this week for my sermon. I rewatched this battle scene just because, you know, it was part of my spiritual preparation. And right at the end, you've got Aragorn with his sword and you've got the eye of Sauron looking down and you've got the, you know, all the men and elves that are left. And there's this piddly group of them, a circle of them and all the orcs of Isengard around them. Yet they're like, we're ready to fight. We're ready to die. We're going to go forward. And as they rush forward, well, you can watch the rest of the movie to find out what happens, but I'll give you the short version. They win and it's epic and it's against all odds. I love watching those movies because I love at that moment when the hero steps forward and charges into battle into certain death. And I think you are just incredibly courageous. I wish I had half the courage as you. But when it comes to the idea of actually like me personally fighting in a battle, uh, all the courage seems to drain out of me at that point. The thought of me actually going to war and having to face the enemy eye to eye the stench of war, the pure fear, uh, the atmosphere, the, la the, the, the noise, the horror. Um, when I actually have, I've considered that in my life and I've, it, it terrifies me. I mean, I flinch when Judah puts his head too close to my eyes. I'm like, oh, how would I be in an actual battle? I'd be terrible. But the reality is, is that as much as we don't want to admit it, or as much as I don't want to admit it, as much as I would be afraid of it, we are actually in a battle right here and right now as Christians. We're in an unavoidable, inescapable battle. But it's not a battle against uh, fleshly forces. It's not a battle like Lord of the Rings. It's a spiritual war. The bullets are flying. The enemy is all around. Danger assaults every one of us all the time. Yet often we cannot would do not see it. We cannot and do not believe it. And we do not live as if we are really in a war. In fact, most of my life and perhaps most of yours, I live as if I'm in a peacetime mentality. It's like we're walking around Baghdad in 2003 in a Hawaiian shirt with a pina colada, wondering what all the fuss is about. But when we come to Ephesians chapter 6, Paul strips down the curtain and reveals that we are not in a peacetime reality. We're not in a hotel or a resort as Christians. We are in a war, whether we can see it or not. Stephen Lawson says this in the beginning of a really good book. Um, if, if you need a book on spiritual warfare, this one's a very simple um, and clear um, outline of spiritual warfare um, in Ephesians 6. He says this, The Christian life is not a playground. Rather, it is a battlefield of spiritual warfare. And the closer we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, the more we advance to the front line of the conflict. The Christian life is not a playground it's a battleground of spiritual warfare. Now, the church in Ephesus were very aware of this spiritual battle. You see, we live in sort of like a, a secular materialist worldview. The majority of people around us, the academic culture we're brought up in, teaches us that there's only that which we can see, feel, and touch. There's no spirits, there's no evil beings. That's all medieval superstition. 
Well, we're deceived by Satan into believing that. The Ephesians were actually far more aware of what was going on than we were. They lived in a supernatural world. Their, their whole worldview was shot through with the idea that heaven and earth were not separate realities, they were intermingled. Spiritual beings and spiritual forces were a part of everyday life. And perhaps for some of you, if you've grown up in a different tradition, a faith tradition, a different background, perhaps not in Sydney or even in Sydney, but your parents have got different beliefs to the kind of secular, normal worldview, you've experienced this as well. Gods and goddesses, you know, spiritual beings, forces of good and evil are behind everything. And so in Ephesus, they were steeped in magic, cult, multiple gods. In fact, some of them were even magicians and cast spells themselves. People were possessed by demons and people were trying to cast them out. And when Paul brings the gospel to Ephesus, so many of the people that became Christians were former sorcerers and sorceresses that when they burned their magician's books, it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver, which is the equivalent of 50,000 days of wages. So this was not a city that was sort of just like Sydney and a bit you know, secular and then the people became Christians. This was people that were living in darkness and spiritual occult. They believed that the gods were involved in every part of their life. They could see the war going on. And so they would side with spiritual forces to gain power. They would attach themselves to particular gods and particular spells and particular ways. And they even wore little amulets and, and wristbands and things like that in, a, in an attempt to protect them from the spiritual forces. And then they become Christians and they learn about the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And then Paul has to instruct them, what does it look like to live as a Christian in this supernatural, spiritual world? And so what Paul does here is that he brings together everything that he's taught in the book of Ephesians to a summary and exaltation point here at the end. See, when we get to this passage on spiritual warfare, this is not like a little blog post that Paul just dips on the end. Like, oh yeah, by the way, like spiritual warfare, just remember and fight it. What he actually does is he culminates his whole argument and summarizes it in the notion of a battlefield. You see, the whole way through, Paul has been talking about the supremacy of Christ, bringing all things together and unifying the whole world. He's been talking about the salvation of sinners out of the clutch of Satan. He's been talking about the harmony and the unity of all people. He's been talking about leaving the old world and then coming into the new. He's been talking about the new redeemed family, the Christian household. And now he ends by bringing all the themes together and saying, the way to live out the entire book that I've just written to you is to engage in the spiritual battle. This is not an add-on this is a framework to see all of the Christian life. So as we come to these next sermons, we're going to go through this passage, verses 10 through 20, in three sermons. So spiritual warfare, part one, two, and three, because I think it really deserves that level of depth of insight because of the way it functions in this book. So today's message is spiritual warfare, part one. Know your enemy. That's spiritual warfare, part one, know your enemy. And our main point today is this. We are in the midst of a dangerous spiritual war. Satan is our enemy. Christ is our strength. And he has given us all that we need to stand and fight and win. Now, that was obviously way too long a sentence, but I didn't get around to making it better. So I'll just say it again. We're in the midst of a dangerous, dangerous spiritual war. Satan is our enemy. Christ is our strength. <clears throat> and he has given us all that we need to stand and fight and win. That's where we're going today. Three points. Know your enemy, point one. Point number two, know his schemes. 
And point number three, know your battle plan. Let's jump into point number one. Know your enemy. See, brothers and sisters, if it's true what the Bible says, and for those of you who aren't yet followers of Christ, if it's true what the Bible says, we are in a dangerous spiritual war, even though we can't see it with our own eyes. And if we are in this dangerous spiritual war, we need to know who our friends and who our enemies are. Obviously, Jesus is our friend, but who is our enemy? And Paul goes on to demythologize this whole spiritual world for the Ephesians and clearly outline who the enemies are. Because in the Ephesian world, they would have had good spirits and evil spirits. They would have thought that like there was forces of evil and forces of good. They wouldn't have known about the lordship of Jesus and that every other spirit who isn't with Jesus is against him. And so Paul reveals who the enemy is. And we'll read about that in a moment. But as we come to think about spiritual warfare, if we're honest, we're probably likely to fall into two equal and opposite errors. Uh, And we swing from one side to the other, depending on our circumstance. And I think C.S. Lewis captures this reality really well um, in his book, The Screwtape Letters. He says this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, that's the demons, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. We have two errors. To write Satan off as a toothless tiger that has no power over us, or to be overly obsessed and finding Satan in our knife cupboard and demons everywhere and we're, we're studying demons and we're everything spiritual warfare all the time. Two errors. No focus, too much focus. Martin Luther famously said it was like a drunk man trying to get on a horse. He gets on on one side only to fall off on the other. That's what the Christian church is like with Satan and demons. So when it comes to you um, and your kind of perception and knowledge of this topic, if you had to fall on one side or the other, which side of the horse do you most often fall? He doesn't exist, has no real power, you're not really afraid of him, or like you're living in absolute fear that Satan's around every corner. Which side do you fall? Well, we need to know our enemy. We need to know what he's like and who he really is. And so Paul will tell us about him in verse 10 through 12. So would you read this with me? Finally, brothers, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So although the Bible highlights that we have three great temptations, the world, the flesh, and the devil, I think Paul, what Paul's trying to say here is that behind all of that, the devil looms as the shadowy figure. He introduces us to two key players here, the devil, who literally is our adversary, and his accompanying spiritual forces that go with him that are given all these other names, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil. Basically, he's saying, Ephesians, your enemy is the devil and his spiritual forces. And he wants them to know that these guys are not weak and powerless but instead are incredibly powerful, crafty, and out to get you. So who is the devil? You know, I mean, what, you know, we watch all the cartoons, we see pictures of him, you watch stupid movies, and there he is with horns and things. But where did the devil even come from? And why does he exist? And how does he exist? 
So if we're going to fight in this battle, we need to know who he is. So I wanted to give us like a little brief, just outline of what the Bible teaches about who the devil is so that we can clear up any misconceptions. The first thing we need to know is this, is number one, that, well, I'm not going to go through a numbered list, but the first thing we need to know is that Satan and demons are spiritual beings who were created by God, who were at one time in God's presence as angels worshipping him. But we learn from 2 Peter and Jude 6 that most likely at some point they rebelled against God and were cast out of heaven. Okay, so these beings are created beings. They haven't always existed with God. They're created by God and they are the first sinners. They sinned against God before Adam and Eve did and were cast out of heaven and into the earth. Once they were on the earth, we, we find the first instance of this devil character, the Satan, the Satan, in a form of a serpent in the Garden of Eden. It's very interesting when you look at the Garden of Eden. We often think of it as a perfect paradise, right? But it wasn't. The Garden of Eden was innocent of evil. Man was. But there's a serpent in there. Satan is in the garden. So even if Adam and Eve never sinned, they would have been fighting Satan in the garden all their days. He lives and breathes and exists in the garden. He's there to tempt and try and draw away people from God. And he succeeds very early on. He deceives Eve and Adam and they reverse the order. They reject God. And the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that from that point on, death, spiritual death came into the world and every single person born under Adam has been born in some way into the power of Satan, that we all actually follow Satan. That's how powerful and deceiving and tricky he is. Let me read Ephesians chapter 2 for you. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So Satan was in heaven, cast to earth, deceives humankind, and all of humankind, including us at one point, were followers of Satan. We've all been under his rulership when we were outside of Christ. But the good news is, is that God always promised to send someone to crush the serpent in Genesis 3.15. And then in Colossians 2.15, we hear that Jesus has done this. He's defeated Satan. It says, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities, see the same word as Ephesians 6, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So Satan has power but ultimately, the victory has been won. He's been disarmed. He's been triumphed over. But he's still our enemy because he hasn't been taken out of this world. He still exists. He still is attacking the church. And that's why um, 1 Peter 5 says to beware of Satan, who is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour and Paul says in Romans 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. But he hasn't yet done it. And hence we fall in this tension. Christ has defeated Satan on the cross. We, we have victory over him. Yet he still slithers and prowls around the world seeking people to devour seeking to destroy, seeking to deceive, seeking to ruin those who are outside of Christ and those who are inside of Christ. We have victory, but we don't have ultimate victory. The bullets are still flying. The knife is still bared. And there is a real and present threat to us, to our spiritual lives and those we love and our families. So that's point number one, know your enemy. Our enemy is not flesh and blood. Our enemy is not the government. Our enemy is not atheists. Our enemy is the spiritual forces of evil ruled by Satan, 
who has set out to destroy the world and rob God of all of his glory. They have real power and they are the shadow which looms behind all evil in the world. So as we wrap up this first point, I just want to come back to where I began. Do you believe this enemy actually exists? Do you believe that this enemy is out to get you and your family and the people that you love? Because that's what this passage is teaching us. It can be all too easy to live in kind of a a Christian triumphalism that it's been defeated and everything's fine, nothing can touch us. Or it can be all too easy to live in absolute fear. But we need to live in the tension of the now and the not yet. Satan is real. He is destructive, but as we're going to see later, he doesn't have ultimate power. Thank you, Lord. We are in the midst of a dangerous spiritual war. Satan is our enemy. God is our strength. And he has given us all that we need to stand and fight. So what is Satan doing in the world now? So if we know who our enemy is, what's he trying to do? What's his aim? What's his effect in the world? That leads us to point number two. Know his schemes. Point number two, know his schemes. You see, we need to get out of our heads that the devil is a a cartoon character, that he's comical or that he's a bit silly or that he's dumb and gets things wrong. These spiritual beings aren't silly and they aren't dumb. They're incredibly wise, incredibly crafty, and incredibly knowledgeable. They've been around since the beginning of the world. They know how humans act and interact. They know our doubts. They know our fears. They know what tempts a man and a woman. They know what can cause doubt and, you know, they know what can make us trip and stumble. They are scheming beings and they have one goal, your and my destruction. Read what Paul says in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That word schemes there is the word um, the method, the methods of the devil, the, the strategies of the devil. And, and Paul's trying to give us this image that Satan and his spiritual forces are conferring with one another. They have plans. They're trying to take us down. They have a battle plan themselves to distract us, to move us away from the Lord. And so we need to be aware that that is what we're coming up against. We need to be aware that there's actually a strategy being hatched potentially against us. So what are these schemes of the devil? What is, what, you know, what are the kind of plans that he has? Well, I wanted to give us a few examples of how spiritual warfare gets practical in our day-to-day lives so that it's not just this abstract reality. Um, I don't want to go into too much detail because I think we can get a little bit too obsessed with what Satan is doing and not focused enough on Christ, the King and the victorious one. But nonetheless, scripture does teach us and reveal to us some of Satan's strategies. So what are the schemes of the devil that Paul talked about in verse 11? Well, I want to particularly spend a lot of time on one major scheme, and then I'll just give a whole bunch of different ones at the end. I believe from scripture that the main scheme of Satan to try and disrupt and destroy our lives is to lie and deceive us. The main scheme of Satan to attack the church is through lies and deception. You see, the major way in which Satan works in our world is not through possessing people and horror movies and, you know, people running around crazy like zombies trying to attack people. That's not Satan's major strategy. He's much more crafty and subtle than that and actually far more destructive because that would be too obvious. You see, Jesus calls Satan in John chapter 8, verse 44, the father of 
lies. And he's a murderer from the beginning. What Satan is trying to do is lie and deceive us so that we will be destroyed. What he does in the garden with Adam and Eve is he doesn't come as a scary monster and try and freak them out. He just says, did God really say? He aims to deceive them by impugning God's motives, by casting doubt on the goodness and kindness and providence of God. Look how Paul talked about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Another passage on spiritual warfare. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So what are those strongholds that we're meant to be destroying? Look at verse 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. The main way in which Satan attacks the church and attacks the world is through lies and deception. It's through arguments and opinion. It's by thought life, changing how we think, changing our worldview, putting a rock in our shoe of doubt, casting doubts upon the goodness of God, the existence of God, the singularity of God. He doesn't often come, you know, in a horror movie, but in primetime television and in the books that we read and the curriculum that is taught in schools. He's the shadowy figure that lies behind all godless thought. He's the shadowy figure that lies behind all other world religions. Islam in denying the lordship of Jesus Christ. Hinduism in the promotion of millions of gods. Atheism in the, in the belief that there is no God. He's the shadowy figure that leads people to think that abortion is good. That same-sex marriage is to be celebrated. The transgenderism is something that we should celebrate and put upon kids. Behind all the godless thoughts and evils in our world lies the shadowy figure of Satan in subtle and overt ways. So as we get on the bus in the morning to go to work, as we turn on the TV at night, as you go to school or university or listen to a podcast, there is no neutral space. There is no neutrality in this world. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that everyone at one time is either following Christ or under the power of the prince of the air. And so as we live our normal lives, we need to be constantly aware of what we're consuming what we're being taught, what we're being preached to, the propaganda and the ideas. And we need to be aware of the dark and twisted schemes that lie behind all of this. Because Satan is out to try and deceive us, to lead us away from Christ, to not see Jesus as preeminent in all things. And he does that through little tiny opinions and lofty thoughts and bit by bit by bit by gradual degrees, where we're so distracted from the glory of God and the task that we've been given that we don't even realize we're in a war anymore. And we're walking around a war zone with a Hawaiian shirt and a pina colada thinking everything's just fine. His plan is not often to scare us, but to seduce us and distract us. John Stott says it like this, the devil seldom attacks openly, preferring darkness to light. He is a dangerous wolf, but enters Christ's flock in the disguise of a sheep. Sometimes he roars like a lion, but more often is as subtle as a serpent. 
We must not imagine, therefore, that open persecution and open temptation to sin are his only or even his commonest weapons. He prefers to seduce us into compromise and deceive us into error. He's a deceiver. That's what he's trying to do to all of us every day through one way or another. He does have other schemes though. So he begins with lies and deceptions, but the Bible also has a whole bunch of other ways in which G, uh, the Satan schemes against Jesus's people. I'm just going to give you a really quick list and I can give you these verses later. But number one, we see um, Satan puts images into people's minds. That's what happens to Jesus when he's tempted in the desert in Matthew 4. Satan likes to exploit a sinful tendency that's already there. That's Ephesians 4, 27. Do not give the devil a foothold. And he's talking about anger. He tempts people with sexual sin. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 5 talks about how husbands and wives should continue to be intimate so that Satan would not tempt them. He inspires people to create ideas and teachings which go against what the Bible says. And they believe it's plausible. But actually, 2 Timothy 2 says that they've been captured by Satan to do his will. So he comes in the form of images. He comes in the form of exploiting sinful tendency. He, he tempts us through sexual temptation, through false teaching. Number five, 2 Corinthians, Paul talked about the thorn in his flesh was a messenger from Satan. That actually physical illness at times can be something that Satan uses against us. We see this in the story of Job. Satan inflicts terrible curses upon, um, people, uh, on Job, and that actually comes from Satan himself. It doesn't mean that all sickness is from Satan, but it's one of the strategies that he uses. He entices us to lie. See Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. And he persuades us to trust ourselves and not God. You see that with David, King David, when he takes up the census in 1 Chronicles chapter 1. It says Satan enticed David to take up a census. Rather than trusting in the resources that God had given him, David starts to count his men and to boast of how great his army is. So Satan has all these, and there's way more than that, but all these different ways of trying to chip away at our confidence and our faith and our trust and our devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Many, many, many schemes. Many schemes. Now, will Satan attempt to attack you tomorrow or today? I don't know. I don't know how many minions he has. I don't know how far reach his power is. I don't know exactly how active he is in our particular church right now. But he could. And that's what Paul is trying to say to the Ephesians. We don't know. He's a schemer. He's around. He's present. He lives. And he's trying to attack you. And that leads us on to the third point, um, which is what do we do? Okay. So point number one, we need to know our enemy. Point number two, we need to know his schemes. We need to be aware that there's actually stuff going on without us realizing it, we're being affected. And it could even be happening to you right now. And that's meant to make us a little bit afraid. Okay. Afraid enough so that we do something. Okay, I want us to be afraid enough so that we do something. But let's get to point number three. What are we meant to do in this dangerous spiritual war? Point number three, know the Lord's battle plan. Point number three, know the Lord's battle plan. You see, um, one of my friends, I'll call him John because that's actually his name. Um, John, John used to be in the army and he's a legend. He's rough as guts and he's fought and ended on peacekeeping missions. And I talked to John, I used to talk to John a lot about God and we'd have these fantastic um, discussions. And I'd always be like, John, you, you need to bow your knee to Jesus and join his team because you're against him. He's like, no, 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 I'm not against him. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not with him. I want to be God's soldier, you know, like, you know, I don't know about worshiping him and loving him and all that, but if Jesus needs a soldier in his army, I'm his man. 
and I'll go out there and I'll shoot Satan and I'll destroy his demons. Give me that mission. I'll do that for God. <laughs> and so John had this like real spiritual warfare mentality, but he had the wrong method. He had the wrong plan. That's not what God wants us to do. It's not like we're meant to go out there and be exorcists and kind of take down Satan one stronghold at a time. Because the, as we've already seen, the major strongholds that Satan has is in thoughts and ideas, not so much in possessing people. So what is God's plan to protect us against the lies and the deceptions of the enemy? Well, we, we are given this incredible battle plan in verses 10 through 18. And I'm not going to read out all of it now, but I'm going to give you the four-step battle plan so that we can fight and begin to fight in this spiritual war. It's, our plan isn't to study demons and to talk to them and find tricks to kind of cast them out or to kind of list every single way in which they scheme in the world. That's not the plan. This is the plan, the divine plan, the plan given by God. What do we do when Satan attacks us? What do we do every day? Tactic number one given by God, verse 10, depend on the Lord's strength. Let me read verse 10 again. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his mind. I hope that as I was preaching earlier, you were starting to feel a little bit afraid, a little bit aware that you're a bit vulnerable and that Satan's trying to get you. Okay. I want you to feel that. But what I don't want you to do is freak out and be like, oh, I got to hide. What this passage is saying, Paul is trying to teach us, is this. Be strong in the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ, who has conquered Satan, is on our team. So we don't need to puff our chest, get our spiritual guns, and go for a battle. We need to get on our knees and turn to him and be strengthened by him. We have no power against Satan. It's Satan. He's way smarter and stronger than any single person in this church and in the world. He will beat everyone easy, but he's got nothing against the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul says to the Ephesians and he says to us, stop going for charms and you know, bracelets and stop worshiping these gods and all these omens and these tricks and stop being worried about all that. Be strong in the Lord. And the way he says it there, it's, it, it's a passive verb, which means you can't do it yourself. You have to be strengthened by God and the strength of his mind. So we have to actively put our faith and trust in Jesus to protect us from the dark Lord. We go to the light Lord to protect us from the dark. So tactic number one, depend on the Lord's strength. And there are no off days in spiritual warfare. There are no days when we can safely leave the house and be like, Whew, glad I, Satan's not out today. Day off, it's a public holiday. It's not how it works. When your annual holidays come, Satan is still there. So every day we need to depend on the Lord for his strength. So where do you turn for power each day? Where do you turn for spiritual strength? Where are you turning to, you know, as the passage is going to say later, gird yourself, gird your loins? Where are you going? Turn to the Lord. That's tactic one, depend on the Lord. Tactic number two, how do we get that power? What type of power? Well, this is all of next week's sermon, so I won't go into too much detail. But tactic number two, put on the whole armor of God. Let me read verse 11 and 13. So how are we strengthened by the Lord? Well, verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. You see, brothers and sisters, we can depend on the Lord for strength, and we know that he will give it to us because he's promised to give us spiritual armor so that whatever Satan brings at us and whatever the demons bring at us, whatever lie, whatever strategy comes, it, can't, it bounces off. It bounces off the chest plate, the, the helmet, 
bounces off the sword, the shield, you know, the, 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 the armor on the legs, the belt of truth. We actually have armor. So we don't need to be terrified. We need to be alert, but not alarmed. And we need to armor up. We're not meant to go out there naked and be like, hey, I'm a Christian. Everything's fine. I live by faith. It's no, no, we need to suit up and put the armor and the battle on because that's what God has told us to do. More on that next week. Tactic, so tactic one, depend on the Lord. Tactic two, you have to put on the whole armor of God. That's your only power you've got. And then tactic number three, take your stand. Let me read verse 13 again. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Four times in this passage, Paul commands the Ephesians to stand. It's this posture of unrelenting strength. That the you know this braced posture where Satan comes and you may be hit, but you stand and 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 you never give up. You never are knocked over. You're never thrown backwards because you stand in the might of the Lord. The image I like to have is like we're standing here like this, like ah, come at me, Satan! But behind us, Jesus is just like got his arms there. And so although we feel strong, we're like leaning forward, we've got the balance and the posture. The only strength we have is because Jesus is actually just holding us completely there. So as Satan comes, we're like, ah, oh, we can stand. But we actually have to do it. You see, spiritual warfare is not passive, it's active. Satan is coming actively against the church. So we actively have to stand and withstand in the evil day. Now, these verses are not singular. Our spiritual warfare is not just me versus Satan. It's the church, our little local church, as a unit, as an army, we stand together against the evil one. We stand interlinked arms, interlinked shields with power as a unit because on our own, we're far easier to get deceived and to be taken off. How many friends of yours who used to follow Christ started to break away from a local church and bit by bit got more and more deceived and now they're anti-Christ or they're anti the Bible's teaching? Because they're on their own. They're a sitting duck and the hunter has no mercy. We need to stand together. And then finally, final, the final tactic that we're given is this. Verse 18. Pray Pray, 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 pray. Spiritual warfare is prayer. You can't commence spiritual warfare without prayer. Look at verse 18. This isn't part of the armor. This is how we stand. Verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. So we depend on the Lord for our strength. We have to take up the armor. We stand against the enemy and we do all that through the power of prayer. Spiritual warfare requires spiritual prayer. That's how we fight is by talking to God and being strengthened and equipped and then going out and living. Depend Armor, stand, and pray. John Stott summarizes, I think, the passage very well like this. He says, A thorough knowledge of the enemy and a healthy respect for his prowess are a necessary preliminary to victory in war. Similarly, if we underestimate our spiritual enemy, we shall see no need of God's armor. We shall go out to the battle unarmed, with no weapons, but our own puny strength. And we shall quickly be, or we shall be quickly and ignominiously defeated. Brothers and sisters, we are in the midst of a dangerous spiritual war. Satan is our enemy. Christ is our strength. And he has given us all that we need 
to stand and fight and win. And the question I want us to think about as we close is this. Are you fighting? Are you engaged in the spiritual war? Or are you walking around unarmed and unarmored, hoping that Satan isn't throwing any darts your way? To be honest, for myself, before coming to this passage this week, I think I'd lost sight of the spiritual warfare. It would come about maybe once every two weeks, I'd be thinking, oh yeah, we need to pray for protection from the enemy. But brothers and sisters, I think what Paul is saying here to all of us is this needs to be a constant daily reality. The flaming arrows are being shot and we don't know when they're going to come. But we don't want to be standing out there with no armor on and no defenses to be hit and to be wounded. So brothers and sisters, are you standing and fighting? Are you prepared for the battle? Because the reality of this passage is this. You're in it, whether you like it or not. So may I commend you, know your enemy, know his schemes, and know the divine battle plan. By doing this, we will stand firm until the end by the grace of our Lord Jesus. Let me end by reading to you James chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Let us stand and let us fight together in Jesus' name. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, we pray and ask that you would equip us, strengthen us as a church. We call upon you, O Lord. Shake us out of our complacency, um, out of our doubt about the reality of spiritual warfare. Shake us out of our leisure-seeking mentality that wants to think life is a party. Shake us out of our comfort, Lord, and help us to see the reality of the bullets flying, the enemy all around. Help us not to be terrified, but help us to turn to you for strength and to fight together. God, equip our church this week. Armor us. Protect us so that we may be able to withstand and may we remain standing all the days of our life. Would none of the members of our church be drawn away and deceived by the evil one? God, we thank you that in Christ you have disarmed the rulers and authorities, that you have triumphed over them. And we thank you that we get to be part of the winning team. Would you give us grace to be messengers of the gospel, to bring those who are under Satan's power under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, through telling them that there is a victory possible. There is salvation possible. We need you. We're totally dependent on you, O oh Lord. So would you empower us today to live for you this week, wherever we are. In Jesus' name, amen.